in the book of Matthew again this morning. If you will open your copy of the scripture, Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8 is where we'll work our way through the text and hear what God has to say to our hearts. Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. We're always grateful for our ministry of music. Uh, We thank God for them and how they help us uh, express our own inner praise and thanksgiving to God and lift our voices uh, to his holy name. Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. And they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he got up and went home. But when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God, who had given such authority to men. We use this morning as a subject from which to speak from these verses, Jesus' authority to forgive sins. God's attributes, that is, what he is like, his nature, are revealed to us in Scripture. Among them are justice and mercy. These two attributes are repeatedly juxtaposed in Scripture, that is, they are set in contrast to one another. Do understand that they do not contradict one another. None of God's attributes do. Rather, they work in harmony. Divine justice is what every human being deserves. What is justice? From God's standpoint, it is to be consigned eternally to the lake of fire as the just punishment for our sins against holy God. Mercy, on the other hand, is not receiving justice. It's not getting our just desserts. It's not getting what we all should experience. Mercy is God's deep compassion for hell-deserving fallen sinners. His patience stays His wrath. And makes provision or pardon for sinners. Christians, therefore, are people who have received mercy. We are people who have been pardoned. In fact, we've experienced the rich mercy of God in our salvation. We are identified by God's act of mercy on our behalf. So identified that Romans chapter 9, verse 23, labels us vessels of mercy. 
In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, Peter writes that we were once not a people. That is, before we came to faith in Jesus Christ, we were not a people. But now we are the people of God because we have received mercy from him. We belong to him. We have forgiveness from him. The man in our narrative received mercy from Jesus. And his story is not an isolated one. His story is our story. Because if you're a child of God this morning, I just said you too have received pardon from him. You received mercy from him. You have experienced grace from him. Let's now begin to delve into the text and see what is unfolded here before us and the lessons we gain as we study God's word together. The first heading is forgiveness pronounced. Forgiveness pronounced. You'll recall Jesus was on the other side of the sea, the Sea of Galilee. Remember, he exercised demons, a legion of them from two men, as we learned last week. He goes back across the Sea of Galilee and notice in the text it says to his own city. That is talking about Capernaum. Capernaum was his place of operation, his headquarters, if you will, his base of operations. It was there in Capernaum that he did many of his miracles. In fact, he had performed many of them at Peter's residence. Doubtless, the four friends, and we know there are four of them. Uh, it doesn't say four here, but in the, uh, the account in Mark, there are four. They had heard, and the paralytic himself had heard and perhaps seen the results of Jesus' miraculous healings on people. They knew about it. They knew what Jesus could do. It was all over Capernaum. It is spread like wildfire. Can you imagine? Here are people who all manner of sickness, disease, and demon possession, and they're being healed instantaneously. That message will go like wildfire through a community. And so it says here, they brought to him, to Jesus, a paralytic lying on a bed. What this tells me here is that they concluded that what has been done for others can be done for him. Perhaps they thought in terms of the lyrics of a gospel hymn, God can do what he's done for others. He can do for you. Yes, yes, that's the goodness of God. Amen. With arms wide open, he'll pardon you. The same God who pardoned the man in our story, the same God who pardoned us who know Christ today, it's the same God who will pardon you if you come to him. He is a pardoning God, a forgiving God. Now, knowing about all of the miracles that have transpired and knowing how Jesus easily, instantaneously delivered people from their sicknesses and their diseases and demon domination, their faith was kindled. In fact, it was kindled to a blaze and to the point where we've got to take our friend to see Jesus. And they come to him, notice it says, seeing their faith. The text identifies them as having faith by their actions. They were speaking by their actions. They were saying, we believe that Jesus can heal our immobile friend who can't move at all. He's immobile. He's on the stretcher. We have to carry him. We believe that Jesus can heal him. I love the fact that in the uh, parallel account, the gospel of Mark, Mark underscores the tenacity of these men's faith. 
Jesus, you remember, he was there in Capernaum at Peter's house, no doubt, and he was, as he was healing people, and he was teaching people, and, and the people were packed in that house, and they couldn't really get near the door. They brought him up, and they couldn't get in the house to Jesus. So in their tenacity, in their faith commitment, they went up, remember, the top of the house? And they dug out a hole in the roof, and they lowered the man down into the house so Jesus could see the man and heal the man. Their faith was tenacious. Seeing their faith. And I believe the faith there is not just the four friends. I believe it's also Jesus saw the faith of the man lying on the stretcher. You say, how do you know that? Uh, why would you suggest that? I'll tell you why I suggest that. I, 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 I know what Jesus is like because I read the Bible. <laughs> he knows things about people. Uh, John 1 chapter of, uh, verse 47 says this, Jesus said to Nathanael, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Jesus saw Nathanael and he told him to his face, his own character. He told him what he was like. In John chapter 2 verse 25, Jesus doesn't need testimony about man. He knows what's in man. He knows when there is genuine faith and he knows when there is false faith. He knows. When Jesus sees this man, he knows what's going on inside him. He knew this disabled man was troubled by his condition. That's why he says, take courage, son. He knew that this man was troubled because he had apparently felt that he had sinned and that was the reason for his condition and that's why he is being punished. Now you need to understand that the Jews believed that all sickness and disease was the direct result of personal sin. Remember, disciples asked Jesus who, about the blind man, born blind, said, who sinned, his parents or the man. They, they assumed that the reason he was like that, he was in that condition because somebody sinned. Now, to be sure, some disease and sickness is the direct result of sin. We see examples of this in the Old Testament. Remember when Miriam challenged her brother Moses' leadership and God afflicted her with Leprosy? <laughs> Remember when Isaiah really thought, I, I've been prosperous, I've reigned for five decades, and so I can intrude on the priestly office, and God said, oh, really? He gave him leprosy. In John chapter 5, there's a man there that Jesus healed and said, uh, go and don't sin, lest something worse happens to you. So there are cases when there is sin and there is punishment for the sin that has been committed by the sinner. But not all sickness and disease is the result of personal sin. That's good to know, isn't it? Let me tell you why. Number one, we live in a fallen world. We live in a sin-cursed world. And since, since we live here in the sin-cursed world, we will have times when we will have sickness and we will contract disease. It has nothing to do with our personal sin. It's just a matter that we live here. I like to tell people a lot of times, do keep this in mind when they have troubles and sorrows and sickness and all that. Do understand this is not heaven. 
That's the only place where there's no sickness, disease, and death. So it can happen to us here. Another reason people can have disease or sickness, and Jesus gives us this back in John 9 again, the reality was neither the man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said. No, it's for the glory of God. The glory of God. God can be glorified in the sickness and disease, the troubles that believers go through. Glorify, display himself. The third reason is sometimes we just don't know why it's happened to us. There is no answer that God has given to us. And we have the prime biblical example of Job. Job never read the first two chapters of Job. Before, <laughs> before he was attacked, right? See, we go and flip through it. Oh, yeah, this is the problem, Job and his counselors and their nonsense. They're going through, oh, it's the retributive justice. God is dealing with you, Job, because of your sin. And that's why you did. You just repent. They hadn't read the first two chapters either. They didn't know what they're talking about. God opens saying he's a blameless man. Sometimes we just don't know. Job never did know why he experienced what he experienced. He was a righteous man. And health was all due to God's work for another reason. In fact, it demonstrated this, that a person who's truly redeemed will serve the Lord despite what they go through. They won't quit following Christ when the bottom drops out. They'll stay faithful to Jesus because they're not serving him for what they can get. They serve him because they know and love him. Jesus says to the man here, take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. The word son, Jesus expresses affection for him. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> the affection of Christ for the man. And he says, take courage. That could be rendered, do not be afraid, but be of good cheer. The paralytic saw himself as a guilty sinner in need of forgiveness. Jesus knew his heart's desire for forgiveness. Jesus knew all about the man. And he says, cheer up, it's going to be okay. He knew the man had faith in Christ to be forgiven of his sins. Jesus saw his heart. And he says, your sins are forgiven. At that precise moment, that man's sins were dismissed. At that precise moment, sins were driven away. At that very moment, the penalty for his sin was removed entirely. From that very moment, that man's destiny was changed from the lake of fire to heaven. At the moment Jesus pronounced your sins are forgiven, that man was declared saved. Heaven is his destiny. That's what happened to us. The moment we came to Jesus Christ, he forgave our sins. He dismissed them. He sent them away. And no longer were we headed to hell and wrath and all of that. We rather were headed to heaven because he dismissed our sin. We are the uh, beneficiaries of divine mercy. Divine mercy. To understand this. Now, Christ cleared the man. The man would not have to pay for his sins. Now, if you're a Bible reader, or, or you remember, you'll wonder, well, wait, 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 wait. 
I remember reading somewhere in the scripture that God won't forgive the guilty. I'm sh- I know you did. Let me read it to you. <laughs> Exodus 34, 7 says this. He, that's speaking about God, will by no means clear the guilty. In other words, God will punish the guilty. Justice will be done. He will not let people go free and not pay for their sins. God is a God of justice. He's got to uphold his own moral law. God will not permit people to just get off scot-free. But Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. Jesus drove his sins away. The man will never encounter the penalty of his sins. Is God unjust in not punishing this man? Is God unjust in not punishing us for our sins? I think the right answer, if you're trucking with me, you say, uh, no, it can't be unjust. God is a God of justice. Jesus, when he said, your sins forgiven you, as one commentator said, Jesus tasted at that moment Calvary. Because Jesus knew at that moment, as I forgive you your sin, I'm going to pay for it. Every time Jesus forgave somebody of their sin, he knew he was going to pay for it. He lived under the light of the cross, the darkness of the cross, and he knew every time someone came and he saved them, I'm going to pay for that person's sins. Think about that. If you're a Christian here this morning, before you were born, Jesus knew he was going to pay for your sins. He was going to taste Calvary for you. He was going to taste death for you. He's the substitute. It's either we pay for our sins or our substitute does. Jesus, but that man, this man's substitute. He was going to bear his sin in his own body on a tree, as Peter says. Now, I'm going to tell you what this means. So we're talking about, remember I opened talking about the juxtaposition of mercy and grace? These two uh, attributes of God, they don't compete. The man's sin was paid for by the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, thereby upholding divine justice. And at the same time, exhibiting divine mercy. You get it? God dealt with sin. He punished sin in the substitute being just. Romans chapter 3, verse 25. But at the same time, he could express mercy. To the one who believes. And so they don't contradict. They don't compete. In fact he upholds justice. And expresses mercy. Only God can do that. God's attributes of justice and mercy. Do not operate in opposition to one another. They work together bring us salvation so it is with us here we're in the Christmas season and I was thinking the other day this little line came through my mind from the cradle 
to the cross. It's the whole point of his entrance into the world. He's going to the cross. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Paul outlines again the cross work of Christ and how he erased the certificate of debt that was against us. He removed it. And we have reconciliation with God because we trusted him, right? We have the forgiveness of sins. All of them. Let Let me say something about this. All of them? Yes. All of them. You say, well, what about the sins I'll commit next No, this week. (laughs) Christ paid for your sins before you were born. All of them were future. You didn't know it. But when you came to faith in Christ, you discovered all your sins. The penalty of them have been paid for. That's why you don't go to hell. So next week, no, this week's sins have already been paid for in terms of the penalty. It's the good news. That's an aspect of the gospel. That's why the gospel is good news. Our sins in terms of his eternal impact have been addressed fully and finally once for all. Hebrews 10.10 by the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Now you can imagine. Jesus saying, your sins are forgiven. Some people in the crowd, some scribes, you know how they were, these experts in the Mosaic law, they're thinking to themselves, this fellow blasphemes. And they were saying this, thought this to themselves because they thought that Jesus was doing something that only God can do. Only God can forgive sins. And here's Jesus, this person whom they think is just a man, a a teacher, in fact, a renegade, hadn't been trained in the rabbinical schools, and he's pronouncing forgiveness on another person. In fact, by pronouncing your sins are forgiven, Jesus was claiming equality with God because no mortal could do that. And again, in the... Parallel account in Mark, Mark chapter 2, verse 7 says, Who can forgive sins but God alone? They were right. Theologically, they, they had their theological T's and, and, and I's dotted. Crossed the T's and I's dotted. Yes, they were right about that. God had pronounced that himself. First person, God says in Isaiah 43, 25, quote, I, I alone am the one who wipes out your wrongdoings for my sake, and I will not remember your sins. God does it. I and I alone. God alone has the prerogative or the right and authority to forgive sins. He alone can do that. He alone can dismiss the sins that are ultimately against him. Keep this in mind. Whenever you sin, if you sin against another person, however and whenever, do understand every sin ultimately against him is against him. 
That's why David prayed in Psalm 51, verse 4, after his great sin against you and you only have I sinned. It was your law that I broke. It violates God's law. 1 John 3, 4, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. Violates God's law. And God is the only one, therefore, can forgive it. Well, they're thinking this to themselves. Verse 4, get this. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? First of all, that would mess with me. I'm sitting there thinking this, and he turns and says, why are you thinking like that? Uh, oops. You can't lie. You try. It ain't going to work because you know you've been caught. He reads your mind. This is the omniscient Lord. Hmm. Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? They were thinking evil about the Son of God, saying he blasphemes. Now, Jesus does this in verse 5. Which is easier? To say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. Let me give you what one commentator says about this. Jesus was not asking which is easier to do, since both are beyond human ability. Rather, he was asking which is easier to claim. A convincing reality to claim as a convincing reality, which is easier to claim as a convincing reality. Obviously, it's easier to say someone's sins are forgiven since there is no way to empirically confirm or deny the reality of the claim. Put it this way, you can't see when sins are forgiven. I mean, it's not something out there that has visibility you can say ah oh, there that sin goes <laughs> it's the pure word of God the pure word of Jesus Christ the commentator goes on to say telling a paralyzed man to get up and walk is something that can be immediately tested end of quote to put it another way it can be verified the empiricality of it is that you can observe it Jesus is, in effect, saying, okay, you wonder if I can forgive sin. Let me show you I can do it. I'll give you something that will show you that I can do it. I have the power to forgive sin, and to show you I have the power to do that, I'll do this too. That's what he's saying. I'll show you to question me. No, he didn't say that's me, but you, <laughs> you, you, you get my drift, right? It can be verified. So he's pronounced the forgiveness. Now he's going to give the proof of the forgiveness. That's why he says, but so that you may know, you scribes, and everybody else in the room, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Now let me stop for a moment and tell you about Son of Man. That is a title that Jesus was fond of. He designated himself about 80 times in the Gospels as the Son of Man. It spoke of his humiliation. 
from his incarnation. He was in heaven, you know. He came down here as a human being. He walked among us. Suffered among us. He was a man of sorrows. But that phrase, son of man, also indicates, or has implications from as him being Messiah. Messianic implications. Identified, son of man. So what our Lord does here with the word, he commands the man, notice, there's a break. He doesn't finish the sentence. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he just stops. Here's the break. He turns to the man. He says to him, get up. Pick up your bed and go home. Just a word of power. With the man came the power to comply. Jesus' miracle working power did something. When Jesus said, get up, take up your bed and go home, I'm going to tell you what happened. The text doesn't tell us this, but think about this. We understand this. You're paralyzed. You haven't been using your muscles. They have atrophy. You've lost strength. People have to pack you around everywhere on the stretcher. You've been like this for who knows how long. You couldn't get to Jesus yourself, so four friends had to take you there. So you have no ability to get up, take up your pallet, and walk, right? So what Jesus did when he gave the command, his power came. Those atrophied muscles were no longer atrophied. His weak body was no longer weak. He was restored as to before he was paralyzed. And he was able to obey the command. I'll tell you something else I believe happened here. When it says, and he got up and went home. He obeyed Jesus. He had to believe Jesus. You have to believe him when you're lying in a pallet and you've been unable to move. And he says, you get up and go home and you get up and pick up your bed and go home. That's faith, people. Okay, now what, what is Jesus doing here? The miracle proved Jesus' claim to forgive sin. His claim to forgive sin is validated. And more to the point, his claim showed that he was not a blasphemer. And that he is God as he claimed. This, this healing demonstrated who he is. <laughs> that he is indeed God in human flesh. This book, Matthew, calls him Emmanuel. God with us, right? It's who he is. He came to deliver us from our sins. This was a miracle. Inexplicable by Science and nature. This was God intervening. God in human flesh intervening and by his word healing a paralytic. Showing them and us who he is. The crowd, they were awed. That's why they responded as they do in verse 8 or did. And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. 
Let me just pick this apart for a moment. There's a problem here with them. They saw this miracle and they said all the words that people say when they praise God. Praise God. Look at that, brother. Hallelujah. Then they said, God has given such authority to men. But that appears to be as far as it went. Sadly, many in the crowd remained unconvinced of Jesus' deity and therefore that he could forgive their sins. They could have believed on him and received eternal life too. They could have received the spiritual benefit that the former paralytic had received. But they were content just to say, Glory, hallelujah. We haven't seen anything like this ever. Rather than saying, Jesus, what you did for him, what you do for me. Why did Jesus do this miracle to prove who he is? You need to understand that John chapter 20. We'll read a couple of verses as I come to a conclusion. John chapter 20. Verses 30 and 31. Sometimes people wonder, why doesn't Jesus do that today? I'm going to tell you why. He doesn't have to establish the fact that he's Messiah. We got the Bible. He proved it. We got the record. Go to the doctor. Here's why he did it. Many miracles. John 20. Verses 30 and 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's the point of this book. That's the point of the miracles here in John, that you understand who he is. He is the Christ. He is Messiah. He is son of God. He is deity. And that you can have eternal life if you believe on him. That's the point. He's made his case. He has authority to forgive sins. What will you do in response if you're not a child of God? You can have the forgiveness of your sins. Or would you rather attain them? And die in them. Sadly there are people like that. They say oh yes yes yes. I know all of that Jesus said. No, Yes 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 I know all that. The Bible teaches yes 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 yes. But have you. Turned from your sin. And come to him. And been forgiven. He is willing to forgive you. You say, you just know how many sins I've committed. Richard Sibbs says, there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in you. He's got enough mercy for you. No matter if your sins are piled as high as heaven, his mercy outstrips it. He can save you and forgive you all your sins.
And we have some people in this place who can testify that he's done that for them. And he will do it for you. Let's bow together in prayer. God, our Father, we thank and bless your holy name for you're so good and merciful. We thank you for staying your justice in our particular cases and granting us your mercy and your grace. I pray for others in this room who need to experience your mercy and salvation, your grace and salvation. Turn their hearts to you in repentant faith to believe on the only one who can save. There is no other name given unto heaven whereby we must be saved. The name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn them to you. Turn them to him. We pray for us who are saved. May we revel and rejoice in the reality of what you accomplished through Christ for us. And may that deepen our love for you, our service to you. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.